Every day, the graduate student writers of astrobytes.org publish summaries of recent developments in astronomy. Then we sit down with recent astrobytes of our choosing and bring them together, sometimes in ways you wouldn't expect. We call it Astro Soundbites. I'm Elena Rice. I'm a fourth-year PhD student in the Yale Astronomy Department, where I study the dynamics of planetary systems. I'm Alex Galliano. I'm a third-year graduate student at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, where I study supernovae and the stars they came from. And I'm Will Saunders. I'm a third-year PhD student in the Boston University Astronomy Department, and I study the atmospheres of planets in our solar system. You're listening to Episode 34 where classifications crumble. We often talk on this show about different types of objects, including planets, stars, and galaxies. But what about objects that don't so nicely fall into place into these categories? Those will be the focus of today's episode. We'll be delving into some recent research focusing on peculiar objects that can't be easily categorized, like banana bread. Is it cake? <laughs> Is it bread? <laughs> can hot dogs be sandwiches? And tomatoes have seeds, but can you actually call those things fruits? <laughs> to all of the above, I say the world may never know. You want a fun little anecdote about the tomato one? Sure. So Congress <laughs> passed a law that tomatoes are a vegetable for the sake of import taxes. Oh, interesting. They anatomically are a fruit, but they are legally a vegetable. Really? Yes, really. They just feel like vegetables. They do. I don't like tomatoes and I like all fruits, so Same. they can't be fruits. <laughs> Neither of you like tomatoes? Uh, I have acid no. reflux, so tomatoes are a big no-no. Nice. Oh. You should talk about that in more detail. On oh, show. absolutely not. <laughs> Definitely seems like the venue for it. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I feel like everything's better without tomatoes. Like even pizza, if you just take the sauce off, it's like, it's just better. Stop. White pizza's great. What? Multiple types of cheeses, and you get like a different crust texture. It's lovely. I'm Italian, so you're really preaching <laughs> the wrong choir here. <laughs> um, well, tomatoes were not introduced in Italy until the discovery of the New World, because they are native to the Americas. Well, I love pizza, and I'm Italian, and spaghetti's great too. So. <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> So in today's episode, we're going to be talking about a lot of difficult to classify objects, such as the ones that we have mentioned earlier, banana bread, tomatoes, et al. <laughs> so these objects that we've talked about so far have particular characteristics that we use to define what categories we think that they fall into. So could one of you start us off by telling us what the actual process is if you decide that you need to create a new class of astronomical objects? I think to create a new classification, you just need to be the first one to publish on that object. It's a good question because new classes of objects have been proposed. Some have stuck, some have not. But in the literature, you'll find reference to things like plunets. Those are planets that have formed from ejected moons or moon moons. Those are the moons of moons. But those haven't caught on. I feel like you need some combination of proposing a catchy name and doing it while it's still relatively early in the field so that more people have to use your classes. Do you know if the International Astronomical Union, the IAU, has authority on this? I know that they were the ones who decided on the category of dwarf planets when the question of Pluto was being right. debated. I'm actually not sure if they were the ones who proposed the term interstellar object. 
but that's also a pretty new class of objects. Mm. They must have some hand in this. You would think it would be an international, worldwide effort. But I think it's a good point that to some extent, it is going to be influenced by the first person who publishes a paper and puts a name on it. We're going to hear about a couple of different astronomical objects that live on the edge of these classifications, and those will give you a sense for what types of objects we're thinking about that aren't quite going to fit into these nice planet, star, galaxy classifications that we often think of. So Will, can you start us off with your astrobite? Absolutely. So the astrobite I'm presenting today is called Three Little Outliers in a Sea of Planets, Stars, and Brown Dwarfs. Hmm. This was written by Alice Curtin and the paper is by Crater and others. We have spoken on the show about some of the challenges around planet formation, and it's well believed that planets start off in a pancake, a disk of dust and gas, and eventually the dust grows and grows and grows until it forms a planet. But there's a problem. When you get up to like around a meter-sized object, that material is so easily lost, it doesn't continue to grow, and they call this the meter problem or the meter barrier. And there is some work that's trying to get around this, but it's still really hard to understand. This astrobite is taking a different approach on how planets might form from a disk. And instead of forming from the denser part of the disk toward the center, it's forming toward the outer edge of the disk and much, much further than even our furthest planet, Neptune. We're talking like 40 to 100 AU away from the central star. And this is pretty rare. Most exoplanets do not have planets this far out. And that's part because of selection bias, the way that we look for them, and part because most stars are M-dwarfs, or small stars that have smaller planets close in. But there are well-known planetary systems with really, really far out planets. And an example of this is HR 8799, which has four planets, each of which 10 times Jupiter mass, and all between 30 and 60 AU from the star. So it's really quite an unusual circumstance relative to the exoplanets that we're familiar with. Hmm. There are only a few systems that have been detected in the same way as HR 8799 using the method of direct imaging, which is where you actually just take a picture of mm. the system. Mm-hmm. And HR 8799 is an incredible system because we've actually monitored it for at least over a decade. Oh, yeah. So there are actually videos on the internet that were made by a friend of mine, Jason Wong, who animated the motion of these planets. You can actually see videos of planets in another system. That's not wow. something that we have for pretty much any other systems. It's just a couple of these directly imaged ones. It's pretty incredible. But this is the most impressive of them. So definitely recommend looking it up. Hmm. Yeah, it's it's wild, and there is certainly a lot of effort into trying to understand how it formed and how it evolved, since it's contrary to the category. It's certainly outside of the standard categorization. Mm-hmm. Now, the way that they propose you could get large planets forming toward the outer edge of a disk like this is to have a gravitational instability. The disk breaks down and clumps together. The gas dissipates and the dust forms into planets. In order to get this instability, in order to make the disk collapse, you need to have two things be right. One is summarized by this parameter called the Tumray Q parameter. It's this guy, Alar Tumray, who proposed this in 1964 in a famous paper. And it combines a bunch of parameters, gravity, pressure, and shear, which is sort of deformation. And you really want to get this parameter Q below one. The lower, the better. And to get those, traditionally, you want to have things be cool, so there's not a lot of pressure. 
and you want to have low differential rotation, so not so much shear, so things can continue to grow and stick. Just to jump back for a second, when you say the lower the better, you mean tumor cube values far below one means you're going to collapse, right? Yes, the better if you want planets. <laughs> Got it. Yeah, okay. The second thing you need to get planets in a gravitational instability is rapid cooling. And think about it. If the disk cools slowly, then the heat that is given up by the gravitational contraction, it's going to just warm up the area. The gas is going to heat up, create pressure, and the pressure is going to stop the collapse and formation of planets. So you actually need a disk to be efficient at radiating away heat. So with these two ideas in mind, the author is set to look at HR 8799 and explore using a theoretical framework, working with equations and models, the relationship between different variables, what conditions would be required, and if those conditions are possible for this system to form planets between 40 and 100 AU. Right. So you mentioned that planets usually aren't formed through a gravitational instability, right? Right. So would these be a fundamentally different kind of object? Or how are these different from the other planets that would form in other ways? Yes, you're very prescient. We'll get to that. They will be fundamentally <laughs> different. Um, so that comes when we get to some of the results here. So I'll dive into that. Mm -hmm. What they found, so these two parameters, you have the tumor Q value and this cooling time value. And in general, mm -hmm. like I said earlier, the Q value, you want to get a cooler disk and higher density. That's what's going to have it collapse there. But for cooling time, you actually need the disk to be a little warmer and a little lower density. So they're sort of at odds with each other. And there is an overlap. They created this great figure, figure two in the paper, which shows the parameter space where each is favored, the tomb ray value where you want it and the cooling time where you want it. And then do they overlap? And if you get out to like 100 AU, at least 70 AU, you get a little overlap region. The right temperature and the right density, boom, you get your gravitational instability. But further in than 70 AU, you can't do it. And these planets are much further in than 70 AU. Okay, that seems really weird. I was, I was going to say maybe you just need an enormous disk, but it sounds like even if you have that, then that doesn't work for this system. Well, that's one possibility. Maybe the model wasn't tuned correctly and they didn't explore enough parameter space or they had some errors there. But they suspect that planets love to migrate inward in planetary systems. Maybe they formed further out and just, you know, walked on in. But that's not even the weirdest part. The weirdest part is planets that form from gravitational instability tend to be massive, much bigger than the 13 Jupiter mass deuterium burning limit. And so once you get past 13 Jupiter masses of size in a planet, it starts to burn deuterium, which is heavier hydrogen. It's got an extra neutron. And that makes a brown dwarf, which doesn't quite become a star, but does have some of its own heat. So if you formed planets in a gravitational instability like this, they wouldn't be planets. They'd be brown dwarfs. And so that's where this gets really weird. That's why these planets around this star defy the category, because the category for this system should be a star with a bunch of brown dwarfs around it. Hmm. But it isn't. What determines what number of objects you would get? So why are there multiple planets or brown dwarfs or whatever they are in the system as opposed to just one big other star or like one other big brown dwarf? Yeah, I don't know the answer to that. I'm not sure that anyone does, <laughs> but it's an interesting It's a question. complex problem. Yeah. Yeah, I think in this case, there were four objects and they were looking for four. I think they were focusing on this system. In another case, you might like to run a model that has it open-ended and let the forces do what they will. 
But that wasn't the case here. This wasn't like an n-body simulation. This was an analytical approach, focusing on the equations and how they behave under certain characteristics. Just to be clear, the bodies in this system are planets, right? They're not brown dwarfs, whereas the model predicts they should be brown dwarfs if they collapsed. Correct. They are planets, and that's weird. Hmm. Got it. By that, do you mean their planet masses? Yes, their planet mass, and we would expect them to be brown dwarf mass if they formed like this. So, really, if the authors did things correctly, their conclusion is that this system must be the tail of the distribution, must be the smallest mass you can get by forming any sort of planets in this system. Because if they weren't the smallest, if they were even average, they would all be brown dwarfs. Is it equally likely that they would be the lowest mass tail of planets formed by collapse and not that they're the highest mass tail of planets formed by accretion? No, it's certainly not. And that's the other possibility is they didn't form this way. There are a number of leaps you have to make that they formed further out, that their behavior was well characterized by these equations, observational potential error. You know, there are all sorts of things that could mischaracterize this analysis but the authors say if you accept our analysis then this is the only acceptable conclusion Hmm. and it's a bizarre one which is why these are the odd ones out the runts of the litter as the title of the paper goes yeah there's this almost arbitrary boundary that's often set between planets and brown dwarfs at 13 jupiter masses which is i mean i guess the reason is because once you get objects that are much larger than that then they start having this deuterium burning and much smaller than they certainly don't But there's Mm -hmm. kind of this question of, should you count it as a planet if it forms like a planet versus if it forms like a brown dwarf? And I don't know that I have a good answer to that as to how we should actually categorize these if it's just like how massive it is versus how it actually got there in the first place. And it's a really interesting question. And these planets, I think, are or brown dwarfs, whatever they are, (laughs) are exactly the type of object that makes this a really interesting argument. Right. That was a really cool astrobite, and it's a really interesting set of objects that has this aura of mystery about them. Absolutely. So speaking of aura of mystery, (laughs) (laughs) that brings us to this week's classifying space sound of the tale of the distribution of classification. (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) I'm going to share a sound with you now, and I want you to guess what you think it is. What do you think it is? Well, the couple bumps make me think of a very limited photon count, or maybe like dust hitting a detector or something. Very discreet. So I would guess that it is, yeah, maybe outgassing of some small body hitting a detector or something like that. It's a good hmm. guess. I thought immediately of a Geiger counter. So <laughs> like, maybe it's related to some radioactive decay of some kind. That actually would be cool. Maybe I should look into something like that for a space out in the future. <laughs> Does that mean that's not what it is? <laughs> Neither of those was what it is, uh, but those are both really good guesses, and I can definitely see how you would get to those. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a sonification of the Black Widow Pulsar's radio emission that's 
flickering in and out as a brown dwarf is orbiting it. Whoa. What's really cool about this is it's actually the tail of a brown dwarf in between us and the pulsar is amplifying the signal that we get from the pulsar. So normally I would think, oh, there's something in between and it would be blocking it and causing these downturns in the sound, but it's actually making the signal much stronger. So it's kind of similar to a gravitational lensing effect. Wow. It's like a magnifying glass for the pulsar's light. That's crazy. And it can increase it by up to a factor of 40, which is actually a pretty huge amount. So you're hearing sort of these pulses as the brown dwarf is orbiting and as the tail passes in between us and the pulsar. And because it's a spider pulsar, that means the brown dwarf is doomed, right? I think so. <laughs> I think it's being destroyed, <laughs> unfortunately. Wow, not survive the interaction. <laughs> yeah. And so the sound that you're hearing, the main tone, it's, it's actually corresponding to the pulsar's 622 hertz period which translates to around an E-flat. So you're hearing this E-flat being amplified and sort of brought back down as the brown dwarf orbits it. Pulsar's got pretty nice pitch. Oh, so that's really the exact same period from light turned into sound. Yeah. Wow, that's awesome. (laughs) Yeah. Great sonification. Yeah, that was fascinating. Yeah, it was a really cool one to find. It was made by the System Sounds Group, which also made the sonification of the 4,000 exoplanets. <laughs> but it's a really cool group that just makes a lot of really fun astronomical sonifications. We will link that in the show notes. Is this a good time to remind our listeners about our ongoing sonification competition? Oh, it is always the best time for that. Let's do it. This is a reminder that we have an ongoing sonification challenge. The deadline is... July 7th. And listeners, if they're interested, should submit a sonification of a data set of their choosing, astronomy or astrophysics oriented. This could be a public data set. This could be a data set associated with your research. Sonify it using one of the tools that we talk about in our sonification episode. That's episode 33. Although you can choose any tool that you want for the sonification and then submit the sound and a brief description on our website, which we will link in the show notes. Thanks, Alex, for the reminder. Sure. We're really excited to hear what everyone comes up with, so you should submit. Worth mentioning also, you don't have to be in academia at all to submit a sound. Anybody can submit a sound. Yes, totally open to absolutely anybody who's interested in sonifying astronomy data and making astronomy more accessible in general. And thanks for bringing the space sound to us this week, Melania. Of course. (laughs) And now I'm very excited for this upcoming segment where we're going to be learning about the biggest hat in the universe, (laughs) an excellent outlier. (laughs) It is very difficult to categorize. So Alex, could you take it away? Yeah, sure. Although I feel like you covered it pretty accurately in your description. (laughs) The astrobite I brought today is called Good Luck Sorting This Hat by Ashley Pacone, based on a paper by Cohen and others in 2020. So before we dive into this project, maybe we should talk about the main types of galaxy classes, which historically are determined by the shape of the galaxy. So can the two of you name the main types of classes? Toss them out. Elliptical. Mm-hmm. So ellipticals are kind of smooth ovals. They don't have a lot of structure to them. <laughs> Spiral. Spirals, exactly. Uh, these are ordinary or barless spirals, which is a galaxy... It's kind of the typical galaxy you think of. They have the curved spiral arms from their rotation. Aren't there also the flocculent ones or something? Uh, <laughs> yes. So I, if I'm not mistaken, flocculent falls into this category of irregular galaxies. 
that have mm. no single distinct shape. They're just kind of a bright, sparkling mess. <laughs> <laughs> cool, cool. <laughs> and then the fourth category is barred spirals, which have a bright, flat component of stars near the center of the galaxy. That's us, right? Exactly. So the Milky Way is a barred spiral. Now, the focus of this paper is the Sombrero Galaxy, as Melina said, the biggest hat in the universe. <laughs> Object 104 in the Messier Catalog. So Wikipedia will tell you that the Sombrero Galaxy is a spiral galaxy, but not so fast, Wikipedia, because as the title of this astrobite implies, Sombrero Galaxy is strange for a couple of reasons. One, we observe a fuzzy halo of light around it that extends much further than you might have expected for a spiral galaxy. And two, the galaxy has more globular clusters orbiting around it than you should expect for a spiral galaxy. It has around 1,200 to 2,000, and by comparison, the Milky Way only has around 150. Is the fuzzy light associated with the globular clusters, or is it from something else? Great question. So the fuzzy light is associated with stars in the halo that are still associated with the galaxy, but Sombrero's halo is much more extended. You'll find stars associated with the Sombrero much further out than you would for another galaxy. Okay. In this study, it's actually the halo that the authors are focused on. They use HST to image the extended halo, 16 and 33 kiloparsecs away from its center. What were they looking for with the images? Great question. So the authors were seeking to do two things with those images. One, after correcting for dust from the Milky Way, blocking out our view of the objects in the extended halo, they used colors of stars in their images to determine the fraction of metals within stars as you move outward from the nucleus of the galaxy. Okay. And what would that tell you? So... The gradient of metallicity in stars as you move outward from the center tells you something about the merger history of the galaxy. More mergers create more metals? If I'm not mistaken, a steeper metallicity gradient means fewer mergers, because the more mergers you get, the more metal-rich stars are pulled outward into the extended halo. Oh, because normally the highly metallic stars are in the center? Right. And when there's a collision, it would rip them out. Mm -hmm. ah, okay, cool. And the second thing they were looking for is they used the stellar density within the image to estimate the total amount of stellar mass contained within the halo, which can also tell you something about the formation history. Okay. And what did they find? So, number one, the population of stars 16 kiloparsecs away is more metal-rich than the population 33 kiloparsecs away. But actually, both groups have way more metal-rich stars than any other massive galaxy we've ever studied before. Actually, the title of the paper is fittingly named The Strikingly Metal-Rich Halo of the Sombrero Galaxy. Hmm. And the second thing that they found is that the stellar mass and metallicity follow predictions from a hydrodynamical simulation if the bulk of a halo's mass was accreted from one massive progenitor galaxy. And because of this, the authors conclude that it seems like the history of Sombrero is dominated by one single massive merger, probably between a spiral and an elliptical, that gives it properties of both. And it happened probably a few billion years ago, instead of having multiple mergers along the way. If we allow it to continue to evolve, well, I don't think it needs permission to do that, but <laughs> let's say we give it that permission. Sure. Um, which one will dominate? Will it be a spiral or be an elliptical galaxy in years to come? Yeah, that's a good question. Eventually, it'll turn into an elliptical once all of the star formation turns off, right? And it gets okay. quenched. 
But right now, it's kind of in this quasi-state where the star formation from its parent spiral is still going on, and the properties of the elliptical galaxy that was one of its parents in the merger still lead to some extended halo properties that we're observing. Got it. And why don't we have more galaxies that look like that? Is it just that this is such a large merger event that that's not very common? Yeah, that's a great question. In terms of the metallicity of the stars in the halo, I don't think the authors have a good answer. Hmm. But it's interesting that this is one of the objects potentially at the very edge of the distribution of mergers that can occur. How long does it take between a merger and, say, one of its forms dominating? In this case, you say it will become an elliptical when it's red and dead. But how long would that take? Imagine we know there are a lot of galactic mergers, so it wouldn't be that uncommon to find a spiral and an elliptical merger. Maybe if it has to be at the right time, we wouldn't see it. But there should be other candidates of this, wouldn't you think? I think that it's probably not uncommon to find a spiral and an elliptical merger. I think it's probably uncommon to find one that resulted in the peculiar properties that we see in Sombrero. Okay, that's a good explanation. Sombrero is also, I mean, there are really pretty pristine pictures of it, which mean that it's probably pretty nearby, right? So maybe we just don't have a lot of nearby examples, not to say that they don't exist elsewhere in the universe. Good point. Yeah, that's a great point. And actually, part of the problem with studying Sombrero, a problem or a solution, depending on what you're trying to study, is that it's almost perfectly edge on, which is one of the ways it got its name is that it just looks like the brim of a hat. It's very, very flat. And this makes it easy to study the halo as distinct from the midplane of the galaxy. But if it were face-on, then maybe we would learn more about its properties as a spiral instead of an elliptical. That's a great point. I think I've said that three times now. <laughs> <laughs> Melina, you can create a whole segment of the show where it's just Will saying, that's a great point. That'll be my next space sound. It's just Will repeating, that's a great point. That's a great point. All we need to do is record ourselves phonetically, <laughs> and then we just do text-to-speech and produce a whole episode. Perfect. Perfect. We should just make a machine-learned episode, just based on like all of the past episodes that we've had. We machine learned some show notes sometime. That's true. Yeah. We're on our way. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, thank you for that really cool astrobite, Alex. It's been super interesting hearing about these weird objects that are at the edges of the distribution of objects that we know of and that are just super strange outliers. Yeah, for sure. Now it's time for our one sentence summary. So, Alex, could you start us off? Now that we know about all the metal-rich stars in its halo, Messier Object 104 is starting to look more like a tinfoil hat than a sombrero. Amazing. Love it. (laughs) How about you, Will? Large, wide planets are weird planets because most things forming in this way from gravitational instability would be brown dwarfs. Hmm. Fascinating. Food for thought. (laughs) Food for thought. Tomatoes for thought. Fruitful as heck. (laughs) (laughs) so it seems like these objects we've sort of categorized based on how they compare with other objects with respect to mass and luminosity and visually how they appear are those the normal ways that we classify astronomical objects are there other aspects of astronomical objects that are commonly used in classifications well historically What we've done is categorized based on what we see. And so when you say luminosity, that's something that would have been classified by ancient astronomers and all the way up into the present day. 
But there were some problems with that. That's how we got asteroids, which are things that look like stars. Aster comes from the Latin word for star. And oid, because they're star-ish, asteroid. <laughs> and in the early days of telescopes, the asteroids looked like stars, but they weren't. They reflect sunlight, which is why they look like stars, but they're actually not anything like stars at all. So it's a misnomer. Same thing with quasars. Quasar comes from the word quasi-stellar object before we knew that they were active galactic nuclei. And of course, there's nothing quasi-stellar about a quasar except that's how it looks. So now we've recategorized those and we have a million names for active galactic nuclei. Modern classification gets a little bit better than that. And I recently read a book, this was maybe a year or two ago, that proposed an effort to classify all of astronomy. And the book is aptly named Classifying the Cosmos, and it's written by Stephen Dick, who was a longtime NASA chief historian, a really cool position. And what Stephen talks about in his book is breaking up all of astronomy into 82 classes. So these are like objects that define the range of things that we see in the sky, and then grouping those classes based on how they naturally fall. And they end up falling into three kingdoms. You have the kingdom of the planets, the kingdom of the stars, and the kingdom of the galaxies. And really, among those categories, there aren't a ton of overlaps. It's pretty obvious which one it falls into. But once you drill down beyond the kingdoms into what he calls the families, and then eventually the classes, you do start to get some overlap. So this system had to be devised cleverly as to how this would all work. And he proposes using gravity as the central organizing mechanism, as you mentioned, Melina. So in such a system, where would you put the planets that were around HR 8799? Right. So those are definitely Kingdom of the Planets. Okay. However, he puts brown dwarfs in Kingdom of the Stars. And I think, I mean, this is all subject to new information, changing our understanding of how brown dwarfs form. But we really do think of brown dwarfs more as failed stars than we do as super planets. And that's because they tend to form in the same way that stars do, right? Exactly. That's the idea. But the role of gravity shouldn't be overlooked in the way that we're designing a classification system because it hints at what the actual mechanism is. If we focus on what we see, we get it wrong. If we focus on how things work, we get it right. And a good example of this is for stars. And there were two main classification systems for stars that exist. You have spectral class, the color, and you have the luminosity class. This is the Roman numerals like main sequence, pre-main sequence, supergiants, and so on. And he wanted to preserve as much of the existing classification as possible. So he chose the luminosity classes because actually these reflect the role of gravity in that star at that certain point of its life or based on its characteristics. Whereas the spectral classes, it's not quite as important in terms of the underlying mechanism. Mm -hmm. The mechanism is really based on the luminosity class. So it was, it's a great effort, and I, I really applaud his work to sit down and put pen to paper on this. Coming from observation, I have to ask, are individual events classified within the schema? So like a supernova, where would that fall in his classification scheme? That's a great question. I don't think supernova would be because it's not a thing, right? It's an event. And so I think a supernova would be a phenomenon that happens to high-mass stars, which are their own category. Supernova remnant certainly is in there. Neutron star certainly is in there. Pulsar, black hole. But no, I don't think transients would be in there in this case. That's my understanding, at least. 
It sounds great in theory, but I think there's sort of a subtle difference between this idea of using gravity to create a hierarchy and sort of my mental picture of what the perfect classification system would be. Because in my mind, I would like for everything to be classified based on the way that it formed and the fundamental physics that underlie each of these categories. And in that case, if if these planets around HR 8799 formed as basically brown dwarfs, or in some way that most planets don't form, then I wouldn't want them to be in the same category because they're fundamentally different in some way, even if they're a similar mass. That's a fair point. And I think you would have to go in the subclass potentially, or maybe subfamily, depending on how these things are organized, and identify these as their own class. Um, so within the family of planets, under the kingdom of the planets, the family planets has terrestrial planets, gas giants, ice giants, and pulsar planets, planets around pulsars. So maybe there needs to be a fifth category in there for these, I don't know what to call them, uh, wide and large <laughs> planets or something like that, because they really do operate on their own formation structure. Gravity plays a different role with them. But I think at this point, we don't know enough to say that, but I think you're probably right. These do challenge this yeah. classification system. I think the problems with classification systems tend to come at the edges, I would think. And so that's that's sort of where it's not Absolutely. so simple as just saying, oh, planet, asteroid, star. It's a little confusing once you actually get to the edges of those. Yeah, and to add another point to that, another shortcoming of classifications, or this one in particular, one of my big complaints with it is it seems like a classification system without a purpose. The best example of classification is biology, where taxonomy, kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species, these all have specific roles connected to the evolutionary history of the, the living things and also connected to its genetic material. So when you discover a new species, you want to see how it connects to the other species. And when you discover that, in fact, two species are closer in the same family, for instance, than you thought, you realize their common ancestor was more recent than otherwise. So in this sense, the taxonomy and biology really helps move the field forward. I don't know that this offers the same thing. I don't know that if we classify astronomy, it helps us understand how things evolved and formed. I think it's just nice and neat and organized, which is great. It just doesn't really move the field forward. I go back and forth on the value of classification. I mean, again, coming from the like transient events side, I feel like when we don't know much about what something is, we just characterize it based on properties of its emission, how bright the emission mm -hmm. is, how long it lasts, whether there's any variation throughout the time scale of that emission. And that classification based on the emission almost takes on a life of its own and stands in for the classification of like the underlying physical mechanism of the object, because we really don't know at that point. And so in that sense, we could be characterizing lots of things based on completely different physical scenarios that all culminate in a similar emission that we observe. But on the other hand, we have to start somewhere, right? I mean, we can't find tales of a distribution if we haven't put a distribution in place to begin with. So even just having a framework, however rudimentary it may be, can be valuable for knowing where to go and when to change the classes. Mm -hmm. I think this raises an interesting question of whether all objects are actually classifiable. Like if we knew the exact formation history of every object that ever existed in space, 
would we be able to come up with a classification system that says these ones formed this way, these ones formed this way, or are there actually objects that are just intrinsically not going to fit into whatever classes that we create? Maybe this is a liberal perspective to take, but I feel like now in society over the past decade or two, we're starting to think more about intersectionality in terms of people. And so these kind of clear cut classes of like, this thing fits into this one bin and not into this other bin, those classes are starting to break down. Mm -hmm. And I, I wonder if we'll come to a similar point in astronomy where based on how you cut up uh, your properties and divide up your classes, one object can fall into lots of different bins. And so you can have this kind of like intersectionality of a classification scheme within your hierarchy as well. I think that's a great way of thinking about it. One of the downsides of classification is it causes prejudice. Categorization can be really dangerous, but we also can learn how to make it work for us because we love to see patterns in the world. And when we can make patterns, we can make sense of things. So I think, Alex, that could really work, that the idea of intersectionality applied to the cosmos could make good sense. Mm -hmm. I'll add another reference that thinking about this idea of classification reminded me of. I read the book uh, Factfulness last year, and it was a really great book. And in this one little anecdote, the author Hans Rosling was at a World Health Assembly meeting. He was talking to the Mexican ambassador who said, quote, I care a lot about Mexico's average number one day every year. That is today. All the other 364 days, I only care about the differences within Mexico. And I think this point speaks well to what you were saying, Alex, and to the overall dangers of classification. It can make you lose sight of the differences within a group when you're focused on the differences between the groups. And both are valuable. I mean, it depends yes. on what kind of study you're trying to do. Sometimes if you want to see how two very distinct groups are different, then it's valuable. Sometimes you want to see distinctions between two very similar groups and, and hint at like small scale, very subtle physics going on. That's also a worthy endeavor. Absolutely. In astronomy, we've talked about these objects that are really extreme outliers, but do objects usually follow a Gaussian distribution where you have lots of objects that are right at the center of the class and then fewer around the edges? Or are they continuous distributions where we just say, we're going to set a hard limit here, or nature sets a hard limit at some point where, you know, you have one star versus two stars, that's pretty hard limit. What kinds of distributions do we usually see in astronomy? Yeah, I feel like the distributions of most complex physical properties look bell-shaped because of the central limit theorem, where when you combine many random variables, there some will tend to look more normal, even if individually those variables aren't distributed like a Gaussian. And when something is Gaussian distributed, you tend to see more objects toward the mean than at the outliers. So I feel like that's kind of why, as astronomy is building up, we see objects that look distinct from other objects, and then we put them in separate classes. But then as we gather more and more of those objects, we start to fill out the distribution. We find more objects at the tails, and then it kind of challenges the models that we originally made based on the few objects at the center that we had. Yeah, that's a great way of thinking about it. I think that really, <laughs> I think that really answers the question. I will give one counterexample, because that's all I was really able to think about, sure. is in terms of classification of stars by spectral type, this would not be true because there's so many more M stars than G stars, than B stars, than O stars. So even within the M stars, there are going to be a lot more 
M9 stars than M0 stars. And maybe this is another reason why uh, Stephen Dick chose not to make spectral class part of his classification instead to go to luminosity class, because maybe they should be Gaussian distributed. But this is one example where they're not. That's really interesting. Just in case this show wasn't philosophical enough already, um, <laughs> it was kind of reminding me of the idea of forms that Plato used, where there's mm-hmm. like the essential tree mm. is like this this tree, you can never actually see one, but there is some perfect tree that exists in the world of forms that is the perfect essence of a tree. And so I guess in my mind, maybe in that framework, there would be the perfect asteroid and everything yeah. else is just sort of like a Gaussian distributed set of, you know, imperfect asteroids around that center. But it's really interesting, the point that it doesn't seem like things in astronomy are like that. Like there isn't the the one M dwarf and then everything else is sort of tapering off from there. It, it's sort of more of a flat distribution of different types of M stars, it seems. Mm-hmm. Uh, so... Yeah, it was just something that sort of came to mind where I don't think that these objects tend to have that distribution. And maybe it's because we tend to classify them to some extent based on the way that they formed, which isn't really like, I don't know how you would classify that as a Gaussian. There there aren't really outliers if they all formed in the same way. Yeah. Yeah. It's based on what properties you're thinking of drawing a distribution for. Like yeah. if, it's, if it's sizes, right. it's probably power law. I think I tend to think about things as masses, where I think dust, and then asteroids, and then planets, and then stars, and that's just increasing mass, but I don't think there's like a Gaussian distribution of there tend to be, well, there actually are a lot of planets that are super Earths, and then fewer about, but it's not a Gaussian, it's it's sort of like a weird, much more non-linear distribution. I wouldn't try to make any comments on the distribution of exoplanet masses because of our selection bias. We have no idea if it's representative at all. So sure. That's true. Specifically for short period planets, they tend to, <laughs> to be this particular set. Uh, but yeah, that's right. a very good point where we really don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so clearly there is a lot to be discussed with respect to classifications. I think this is really an ongoing discussion in astronomy, probably in just about every field. And mm-hmm. there, there are shortcomings, there are benefits, and hopefully you found this discussion fruitful and interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so that concludes episode 34 of Astro Soundbites, where classifications crumble. If you want to read the two astrobites we talked about today and or the associated papers, check out the links in the show notes. If you want to hear more of our awesome episodes, we now have 34 of them. Mm-hmm. So I haven't done the math. But certainly within a factor of two or three, we have over a day's worth of episodes. So you could listen to us for 24 hours straight if you want. It could be like a Lord of the Rings marathon, but with less walking. (laughs) (laughs) And you can find all of those episodes at astrosoundbites.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and SoundCloud. So thank you all for listening. And don't forget to keep your ears to the cosmos. (laughs) 